you'd like to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 1, the apostle writes, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Last week we looked at Jesus' baptism. In the moment of his baptism, Jesus is presented as the king of the kingdom of heaven that John has been preaching. He's presented as savior and judge. He is presented as the holy one of Israel, the the expected one. At the end of that, the Holy Spirit comes to rest on Jesus, kind of commissioning, commissioning him for the redemptive work he's going to do. And the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What's odd is, as soon as those words are spoken, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus up into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Um, Just as a reminder, chapter and verse divisions are not part of the original text. Matthew didn't write chapter 3 and then imagine six months into Jesus' life that it happens. He uses the word then, and that word then is, is called a temporal transition. It means the very next thing that happened. So as the Father speaks from heaven, maybe as his voice is still echoing in the sky, the Spirit of God leads Jesus out. Mark's gospel says the Holy Spirit drove him out. So the sense of leading here. Is, is not kind of a casual thing. It's not just a soft, easy, invitational thing. It's forceful. And it's very purposeful. Jesus spent 40 days fasting. Luke's gospel says that he was being tempted the whole time. And then at the end of that 40 days, it culminates in these three tremendously significant temptations. Whatever was happening before was, I I, I think, probably leading up to these. Now, before we look at these temptations themselves and to see what they signified for Jesus and what his answers signify and and, uh, how they impact our lives and how we are to respond when we are tempted and tempted in in similar ways, there are a couple of issues that I think we need to, to establish. So we're going to patiently go through this. We're going to take the next four weeks to look at the temptation of Jesus. Today I just want to lay a foundational base for 
these two issues. The first is that God the Father and God the Spirit deliberately send Jesus out and take him out into the wilderness so that he can be exposed to the tempter. We often have this idea about God that uh, he's against anything that is a threat to us or harmful to us or difficult for us. And he would certainly never let us be tempted or tested or suffer or anything like that. Uh, obviously, biblically, that's not true. But we can still kind of have that, that, that sense that if something bad has happened, God didn't see it or he's lost control or the devil for a moment has gotten the upper hand. And so we need to talk about God and temptation. And then the second issue is, uh, I think, one of the most frequent questions that I've been asked as a pastor. And that is, could Jesus have given in? Could Jesus have sinned? And the, the, the gut response, kind of the automatic response is, well, yeah, he was fully human. So we want to consider that too because... The answer to that question affects how we see uh, what takes place in the temptation and what takes place in the rest of his ministry. So let's begin with the the question of God and temptation. Uh, It should be clear from what Matthew says that the Spirit of God deliberately leads Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of exposing him to satanic temptation devilish temptation it's not that jesus went out into the wilderness after his baptism for a quiet time or a retreat or went out to meditate and while he was out there minding his own business the devil kind of stumbled across him and thought well let's see what i can do this was arranged this was part of the purpose of god and the plan of god so let's begin by understanding God doesn't tempt anyone. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I, I am being tempted by God. <laughs> Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It, it's interesting to me that James seems to say that because God can't be tempted with evil, God doesn't tempt anyone else. Temptation can only come from people who are temptable. Satan certainly was. In, 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 in eternity past, after the creation of the holy angels, Lucifer is, 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 apparently is the worship leader in heaven, a bright shining figure, and he begins to, to ponder jealousy with God and to cast around in his heart and mind that he's not being treated fairly, and then it, it all bursts open with him saying, I will be like the Most High God. So he was tempted by what was around him. He then becomes the tempter for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are without sin. They have a, an innocent nature. I think from that point of view, you could say that they had a holy nature. It was an untested nature. They had no... In internal fallen nature, and because of that, there was no internal inclination to sin. The temptation had to come upon them from outside. Does the devil t- still tempt people? Of course he does. First Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul says, and this is an example, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith 
for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor was in vain. So two or three decades after the the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, the tempter is able to tempt Christians. That's what Paul is saying. A lot of things changed when Jesus died and rose from the dead. Satan's defeat has been guaranteed, but it has not yet been implemented. He is still permitted to act. He's He's always been permitted to act according to the precise will of God. He's never been a free agent. It's always been under what God permits. But the truth is, we don't need a tempter. James 1.14 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now that the fall has happened, now that we as children of Adam have have taken on a sin nature we're born with that nature that nature leads us to to sin as soon as we can and in all sorts of ways once that happened we no longer needed strictly speaking an external tempter we carry about the seeds of our own destruction within us i don't think satan can create a desire in anyone's heart he can inflame it he can he can fan it into greater intensity but he has to have something to work with he can't create lust and evil desire where none exists he can only act on it after exists now god does test people to reveal their willingness to obey him Uh, deuteronomy 8 2 talks has moses speaking to the people of israel this is the second generation their parents have now died in the wilderness. These are the children of those who left Egypt. These are the people who were born, for the most part, those who were born in the the wilderness. Moses says to them, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, by the way, that first reading from that we had this morning from uh, the London Baptist Confession talked about Scripture interpreting, interpreting Scripture. What we're being told here is not that God needed to find out if they would be obedient. He knew that they would not be obedient. They didn't know that they would not be obedient. The purpose for their testing, the purpose for the testing of Adam and Eve, was not so God could find out whether or not his people would sin, but that his people would find out that they would sin. And that we would be motivated then and driven to him to seek mercy and to seek forgiveness for our sins. So God tests us. He doesn't tempt us to sin, but he permits us to be tested for a variety of reasons, including testing our faithfulness in him. He wants us to know, and he wants us to know when we fail to go to him and to be made right. But Jesus is different, right? Jesus is different than us. He's the same. He's fully man, but he's different. He's fully God and fully man. None of us are fully God. And so we have to talk about Jesus and temptation. Jesus was not tempted to see whether or not he would obey God. God knew as much about his own son as he knows about any other any other created being. 
So, so the father knew that Jesus would not give in to sin. Jesus was tested to demonstrate his righteousness. Not to see whether he would be righteous, but to demonstrate his righteousness and to, to take the events of chapter 3 and God's affirmation of him and put evidence to it. We have God making the, the statement at the end of chapter 3, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then with the temptation of Jesus, we have that identity tested and proven to be true, proven to be faithful. Throughout his temptation, all of these declarations that are made about who Jesus is, about his standing with the Father, his righteousness and his holiness are proven to be true. Now there's a, an obvious connection to Israel in the wilderness in this passage. Jesus fasts for 40 days. The people of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years. There are other 40s that we see in Scripture, by the way. It, it seems to be a number related to testing. Another aspect of, of comparison is that in Jesus' three answers... In verse 4, in, uh, in verse 7, and in verse 10, he answers from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. Those, are, those answers, in other words, are all taken from the, the, the passage that follows Moses saying, God put you, the people of Israel, in the wilderness to test you to see if you were obedient. And so there's a very, very tight connection there. We need to understand that Jesus is the embodiment of spiritual Israel. There's physical Israel, those who are physically descended from Abraham. Uh, We would call them Jews. They're descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then there's spiritual Israel. The spiritual Israel is descended from the faith of Abraham. Uh, Physical Israel was put to the test in the wilderness, and they failed the test. They failed the test actually fairly spectacularly. Now, this is interesting. Uh, on the first, in the first month, on the 14th day, they celebrated the first Passover. They followed the instructions very carefully. The destroyer comes that night, and the firstborn in Egypt dies. They get up the next morning, and when they get up, they find that Pharaoh's kicking them out, and they leave. They begin their journey to the promised land on the 15th day of the first month. Exodus 16 says on the 15th day of the second month, now that's 30 days later, the people begin complaining bitterly against Moses and Aaron because they have no food. Jesus goes without food for 40 days. No food for 40 days. He did drink water. Scripture never says he didn't drink water. But he eats nothing for 40 days. They have food for 30 days, and then they get to the point where the food is beginning to run out and they don't see any options in the future and they immediately give in to their sin nature. Jesus does not give in to his sin nature. We'll see that next week, especially regarding food. But Jesus being the, the embodiment of spiritual Israel had to be tested just as physical Israel was. We have to remember too that Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam was tested in the garden. He failed the test. When Adam failed the test, he plunged us into sin and death. He passed down to us a sin nature. We don't sin like Adam. Uh, We don't all sin alike. 
We have different sins. We have different vulnerabilities. We have different likes. We have different dislikes. But all of us sin because we all have a sin nature. So what about the second Adam? The second Adam had to be tested. We had to see, we had to see whether the second Adam would pass the test and remain obedient to God. Now, why is this so important? Well, in Romans chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, Paul compares Adam and Jesus. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, and death reigning in all of Adam's descendants, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all men, all who are in Adam, so one act of righteousness, Jesus' act of righteousness, leads to justification and life for all men who are in Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, all of those in Adam, so by the one man's obedience, Christ's obedience, the many who are in him will be made righteous. See, we inherit, as children of Adam, we inherit Adam's sin nature. Uh, Over the history of the church, that's often been called original sin. Original sin, to me, kind of sounds like what was the first sin, and I'm guilty of that act. It's really not talking about an act of sin. It's talking about having a, a nature that's dead to God. When Adam sinned, I died. When Adam sinned, you died. Even though you had not yet been born, he passed that down to you. When Jesus lived a righteous life, earned the pleasure of the Father by living in complete obedience to the law of God in utter faith, gave his life as a sacrifice, also in obedience, was raised from the dead, all of those who are in Christ are now made alive. All who are in Adam die by virtue of being in Adam. All who are in Christ live by virtue of being in Christ. See, the question that the gospel answers is not how do I get life? The question the gospel answers is how do I get into Christ? Because he has life. So one of the most common phrases you'll see in the New Testament is in Christ. It's crucial that we be in Christ. And we will be eternally joined to him. That's why we're, one of the reasons we're called his body. We're called his brothers. We become spiritual descendants of Jesus Christ. And we inherit from him. So his righteousness is absolutely critical to our salvation. That righteousness was declared and then it was put to the acid test in the wilderness. Satan was used to tempt Jesus because Jesus had no sin nature. I have a sin nature. You have a sin nature. We have vulnerabilities to different things. I'm, I'm not at all vulnerable to certain things. I'm very vulnerable to other things. And we're, we're all a little bit different in that. And I'm sure it changes over time, depending on who you, who you are and how old you are and just all kinds of factors. But we all have that, that 
tendency within us. So right now, every one of you can think back to the last major temptation you had where you could look at it and you can say, this is a temptation to sin and I need to make a decision. And it was right out there. And you either made the decision to be obedient to the Lord and faithful or you made the decision to give in. But you, you can kind of see that. Maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it was a week ago. Maybe it was a year ago. Whenever it was, you have sinned since because those temptations you never even saw coming. You just went for them. I think we go for more temptations than we ever know we have. I think we just don't even begin to see it. One of the things that has, has made itself apparent in my life over the last few years has been brought into light because of speaking at the rescue mission a couple of times a month. You're dealing with people who have a long, long, long history of alcohol abuse, drug abuse, uh, all kinds of sexual issues, all kinds of jail issues. Uh, sitting with groups of men for supper, I'll often ask, when, when was the last time you were in jail? I've never had one person say, I've never been in jail. My temptation is to say, well, I'm doing pretty good because I'm not like them. Just do that. I just do that. So even a change of ministry raises up a vulnerability that before I really wasn't aware that I had. And I have to deal with that on a consistent basis. So Jesus' baptism is a declaration of his righteousness. Jesus' temptation is the the defense of that righteousness. It's the, the demonstration of that righteousness. Now, one of the most frequent questions I've been asked in ministry, as I said before, is whether Jesus could have sinned, whether Jesus could have committed an act of sin. You can go to the next slide. But I don't think it actually says, Now nah, you're right, I just mistyped it. You can go back for now. Sorry, that was my fault. And I'll clip that out. For some people, if Jesus couldn't sin, it was a cheat. It was a fraud. His temptation was fake. It wasn't real. It, it was a false test. He couldn't have sinned. So what's the big deal that he didn't sin? But see, Jesus could not have sinned. He couldn't have sinned. And I'll give you the clearest reason I know why he couldn't have sinned. Jesus is not just a good man. He's not just a very good man. He is a sinless, holy man with a sinless human nature and a divine nature. He has two natures. All the great confessions confirm Jesus has two natures, even though he's one person. I have one nature. I have a sin nature. Jesus has a human nature that is without sin. He has a divine nature, and of course, God cannot sin. A divine nature, by the way, doesn't mean a nature like a human nature, but better. It means the very nature of the Son of God. Now, as we understand from Scripture and the way that that God is and the way that man is, we understand that there are at least two things that are true about these two natures. One is that they remain distinct. Jesus' human nature doesn't take on divine characteristics. 
And Jesus' divine nature doesn't take on human characteristics. <clears throat> when Jesus is hungry after fasting for 40 days, that's, that's not the divine nature that's hungry. That's the human nature and his physical body that's hungry. When Jesus heals, it's not the human nature doing the miracle. It's the divine nature. And, and those two natures are distinct. They remain distinct. But here's the thing. Those two natures remain inseparable. It's not that Jesus walks down the road and he says, Oh, there's a fig tree and I'm hungry. I'll use my human nature. Oh, there's somebody who needs their sins forgiven. I'll use my divine nature. He's one person. Jesus is not two natures who act like one person. Jesus is one person who possesses two natures. And because those two natures are distinct and inseparable, Jesus couldn't make one decision as God and another decision as man. He couldn't sin. The human nature could not be given the freedom to sin because it's inseparable, although it's distinct from the divine nature that can never sin. So does this make... Jesus' temptation an unfair test? No, because his temptation was not to find out if he would sin. His temptation was to prove that he never would sin. His temptation was not given to us as an example so that we can go live his kind of life. His temptation was the test that showed that he is the sinless, flawless Lamb of God who meets all of God's qualifications as a sacrifice. He faced the full force of satanic temptation over a 40-day period of time. We don't know all the different ways he was tempted. We only know the last three, which are the biggest. Because of this, Hebrews uh, 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows the pressure you and I face through temptation. He's been tempted. He's never been tempted by an internal fallen nature, but he was tempted by the the full extent and intensity of satan's power to tempt for 40 days and so he knows he knows how strong temptation can be there was never a time when jesus said to him i would really like to get drunk but i guess i won't i'd really like to buy lie about this but i i guess i won't his righteousness was not just out outer behavior but inward character he was holy and pure all the way through. And as a result of that, he becomes the sympathetic high priest. So let's bring this home. Uh, What difference does it make that Jesus faced extraordinary temptation and remained faithful? Let me give you three things. First, it shows that he was an acceptable sacrifice for sin. If God was going to require me to satisfy my sin, it would take me all eternity to do it. It's not possible for a human being to satisfy God's standards. 
if Jesus had sins of his own to satisfy before the Father, he could certainly never satisfy God's wrath toward anybody else. Because he was sinless, he is able to satisfy the wrath of God toward all of those who would believe in him. And his temptation is the, the, the concentrated moment of proof. He's tempted all through his ministry. Uh, Luke says that the devil left him until a more opportune time after this. So the devil never stayed away permanently from him. Jesus was an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Second, it shows that he's a kind and merciful savior. Hebrews 4.15, he is a sympathetic high priest. Here's one of the huge differences between Jesus and me. If, if I make wise decisions in a particular area and you make foolish decisions in, those, in that area, I'll tend to be critical of you. I would never have done that. Why did he do that? Why did I pass? You pass people who ran out of gas, and it's like, how could you possibly run out of gas sitting in somebody's driveway just because you're talking? <laughs> and I can be critical of that. Jesus isn't critical of that. Jesus isn't critical of our sin. If you and I manage to get through a day, a, a week, a month without ever sinning, we would become the worst sort of Pharisees. We would become so judgmental toward other people. Jesus didn't become judgmental. He became sympathetic. We always had the love of God. We always had the love of the second person of the Trinity and the first and the third person as well. We always had compassion and mercy and kindness, but Jesus the man becomes sympathetic as one who has suffered temptation. So when we sin and we confess our sins and we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, I committed this sin, I confess it to you, our sense so often is, is that he says, well, uh, oh, well, okay, well, okay. And that he's, he's kind of grudging, but he's not. He's sympathetic. He's sympathetic. And third, Jesus successfully, faithfully facing this temptation shows that his nature and his power is godly and not demonic. That, that may not strike you as important, but during the course of his ministry, Jesus was accused at least once and probably many times of casting out demons by the power of Satan, of being wicked, of being sinful. And this temptation proves that his source of authority, his source of power is not the devil. It's God the Father. If Jesus' source of power and authority was the devil, then the devil would be leading him. Not the Holy Spirit. And when the devil said, do this, Jesus would have done it. So we have proof of his character, we have proof of his kindness, and we have proof of his origins. And we come to communion today, and we share in communion as an act of remembrance. We call to mind our need for a Savior. We examine ourselves in terms of that ongoing need. We have the, the, the scripture in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three where Paul says, I received this from the Lord and I gave it to you. Jesus took bread, broke it, said, this is my body, which is for you, and, and gave it out and said, do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we take the bread, we must remember, we are to remember that Jesus' body was given for us and Jesus' blood was shed for us. And the point of the examination is to see what we remember and to see what we're thinking about. So we need to remember why Jesus gave his body and blood. We need a savior. He he died on the cross because I need a savior. We have the elements of communion as a reminder of that. We're to remember that we don't just need a savior, but we have a savior, that he actually died. And he was raised from the dead. We have to remember the purity of his body and blood. We see that purity demonstrated in the the account of his temptation and throughout his entire life and ministry. And because of his purity, he is a perfect Savior. We have to remember the power of his body and blood to take away sins. We have to remember that he has utterly satisfied the wrath of God against us. That means that he is an utterly successful Savior. He didn't save us a little bit. He didn't save us mostly. He saved us to the nth degree. Hebrews 7.25 says he saves to the uttermost. To the uttermost of your need. To the uttermost stretch of eternity. And... Perhaps most important, and this is most important for me today, it changes. I change, you change. We have to remember that because he was tempted, he was sympathetic. And so he is a happy and ungrudging Savior. And we don't often think of him. Maybe you, maybe you do. I don't often think of him as being a happy, ungrudging Savior. I tend to think of him as having everything that I need, but he just wishes that I didn't need it. And is kind of, well, okay. But he's not. He he knows our need. He knows that we are just dust, Psalm says. And when we go to him in confession, and when we go to him in repentance for forgiveness, he is happy to forgive and he does so without grudging what do you need to believe to really benefit from communion this morning you need to believe that you that you need a savior you need to believe that you have a savior jesus you need to believe that he is the perfect savior you need to believe that he is completely successful as a savior and I think you need to believe that he's a happy and grudging Savior to benefit from everything that this remembrance brings. Father, we thank you for your word as we now examine our hearts to ask whether we're convinced we need a Savior, whether we're convinced we have a Savior in Jesus, whether we are convinced that he's a perfect Savior and completely successful. And Lord, whether he is happy and ungrudging in his saving work, would you help us 
to believe those things and to give up any any challenges or any unbelief or any doubts about those things. Would you grant us the full confidence that we need today in the work of Jesus on our behalf? We understand that communion doesn't convey anything to us that you don't give to us through your spirit. And in fact, you have given us everything in your word and everything in your spirit. And communion is a a picture of what you have given us. But nevertheless, even though it's only a symbol like a wedding ring and other things, it's a very, very important symbol. And it's a very sweet symbol. And so we thank you for this time in Jesus' holy name.